You're listening to Creeping Wave Radio, a documentation of our decidedly creepy escapades here at the Unaffiliated once the mics go off. Gotcha! <laughs> hey, sexy lady, what's going on? Don't try and be cute with me, Napoleon. You missed our evening phone call. This is unforgivable. Well, yeah, it's just that... If only you understood how much I worry about you. I... I know. You must tell me everything. What is it you are doing? Well, last time I talked to you, we were at the sideshow. And Kat, you won't believe it, but they're holding a real-life Sasquatch captive here. Is that so? Yes, they're billing her as Sugar the Monkey Girl. The nerve. Taking a majestic woodland creature like that and parading her around like some tawdry strumpet. Well, it took a little convincing, but I managed to talk the boys into helping me break her out of this madhouse. Oh, Nap, you make me jealous. You are not having affections for this monkey girl, no? No, I... (laughs) I just... Ah, truthfully, Then we won't speak of this monkey girl anymore. I am far more interested in hearing about the brain in a jar. Tell me, did he speak to you? Well, yeah, electronically, but... Ah, what did he say? Did he tell you who he was? Well, uh, it's, it's supposed to be Hitler's brain, but... Excellent. Cat, I never said anything about the brain to you. How did you... This is not for you to be concerned about, my darling. Promise me you will not let these freaks out of your sight for even a moment. No, of course not. Ah, dos vidonia, darling. Hey everybody, it's Adam, and if you're just tuning in now, I'd like to announce that I am a complete and total pushover. Or as some might say, the best friend ever. Isn't that right, Nap? Indeed, Justin. Tonight, we've returned to the Menagerie of the Miraculous. Also known as the Freak Show. If you must. At any rate, we're here after hours and we'll be documenting our daring attempt to free Sugar, the Lady Sasquatch. Uh, and, uh, what exactly makes you think she wants to be freed, Nap? You can't be serious. Well, to be honest, this doesn't seem like such a bad gig. You got free room and board, and all the cotton candy and popcorn that you can eat. You're insufferable. Granted, but what makes you think she'll turn her back on showbiz for some guy with a hang-up on pudding cups? For your illumination, she and I already discussed finer points of her liberation. What? When? She was on stage the whole time. In fact, I never saw you talk to her once. Ugh. It was a conversation carried out through subtle eye movements and hand gestures. I wouldn't expect you to understand. Oh, oh boy. So, are we about to commit burglary and kidnapping? 
I'm more comfortable thinking of myself as a burglar, actually. It does have a hearty sound to it. We're going to need tools to begin. Oh, wow. So, do you actually know how to use these things? Yep. Why exactly? (laughs) A funny story. I went through a phase in junior high where I was obsessed with the musical Oliver. And, of course, I took it upon myself to learn the ins and outs Hold up. Guys, look. What the heck is that? It looks like a big black blimp. A dirigible, actually. Here it comes. A blimp is a lighter than air. I hardly hear them anymore. It's like how people who live near Niagara Falls eventually just drown it out. Clearly has a rigid internal scaffolding. You know, it's a common misconception that the word dirigible uh, is in reference to the rigidity, but the word actually comes from the French diriger, which means to steer. Oh, jeez, my phone. You know phones come with a silent option now, right? No, it doesn't go on silent. (laughs) Well, why the hell not? Vampires. (laughs) Long story nap, why did you bring that thing? I'm sorry, all right? I I just wanted to live update my Snapchat during the podcast. Oh, Jesus. You think they heard us? Sounds like we've got company, boys. Quickly, load everyone into the damage upon. Leave no freak behind. That'd be a yes. Yep, little buddy. No, we have a dissenter. I am not Hitler. I'm sorry, Montfiore, but the monkey girl's being stubborn. Being stubborn, she is, boss. Sugar? Whatever is the problem, my dear? I can't go. I've made plans to meet up with someone. And when did you make these arrangements, my nation? This afternoon? I, I think I did, anyway. I mean, it was all communicated through a series of subtle hand gestures and eye movements, but I knew in my heart that he'll come. We have no time for fairy tales. Get in see her on board immediately. You, 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 you. you can't treat her that way. Yeah. Put the crowbar down. Ah! Well, I'd say that the element of surprise has been lost at this point. Yeah, they're going to kill him. Probably. Yeah. All right, let's rumble. Come out and face me, you cretins. Yeah, face all of us. Were you afraid? <laughs> Do you hear something? <laughs> I heard it that time. Stay sharp, guys. Don't get distracted. Right. Wait, what is that? Get back, quick! Is... Is that a baby carriage? <laughs> Those monsters must have abandoned it. It's okay, little guy. No, no, careful. Don't get too close. <laughs> oh, you're a cute fella. I'm sorry, fellows. Oh, oh, there's, there's three of you? <laughs> Oh, don't cry. Nap is here. 
Come on, show me a smile or or smiles. A three-headed baby. <laughs> See, that's better, isn't it? <laughs> you bit me. It's okay. I know it was just. An accident? Oh no. Oh god, please no! In today's episode, a dirigible made an appearance. It seems that whenever the subject of dirigibles, zeppelins, or airships is brought up, the first image that springs to people's minds is the Hindenburg disaster of May 6, 1937. Sadly, few people know much, if anything, about the ill-fated craft's namesake, Paul von Hindenburg. And that's a shame, really, because Hindenburg was not only a decorated war hero and statesman, but one of the last men who would dare to stand in the way of Adolf Hitler's ascent to power. A graduate of the Wolfstock Military School, Paul von Hindenburg would first prove his mettle on the battlefield in 1866 during the Franco-Prussian War, sometimes called the Seven Weeks War. Beginning his military career as second lieutenant in the Third Guards Foot Regiment, Hindenburg would fight the Austrians and Koningratz. While there, his company commander was wounded and the MCO killed, forcing a young Hindenburg to assume control over his platoon. To give you an inkling of what a stalwart soldier Hindenburg was, he led his troops to conquer an Austrian gun position, despite a bullet piercing his helmet and grazing the top of his skull. His bravery won him consideration for Austria's highest honor, the Pour le Merite. Ultimately, and perhaps unfairly, at only 19 years of age, Hindenburg was denied this honor on account of being too young. He would, however, receive another decoration the Order of the Red Eagle, fourth class with swords. He would later go on to receive the Iron Cross in the Franco-Prussian War at the charge of St. Privat. Thereafter, Hindenburg remained with the Prussian forces in Paris until June of 1871. During his stay, he bore witness to the French Civil War, and the memory of it no doubt influenced the choices that he would make later in life as a politician. This little-known civil uprising came in response to the capture of French Emperor Napoleon III at Sedan. Thereafter, the Third Republic became established in Paris. The Third Republic stood in defiance of the German siege upon the country, only surrendering when forced to the brink of starvation. Hunger demanded that they negotiate a peace with the Germans. This spawned the birth of the Paris Commune, a group of radical socialists and revolutionaries, sometimes called 
communards, who rose up in outrage. The commune ruled Paris from March 18th to May 28th of 1871. They proved themselves grossly inefficient, quarreling amongst themselves and launching into several tentative attempts at municipal government. The Third Assembly eventually negotiated the release of French prisoners of war in an attempt to form an army and regain control of Paris. The ensuing battle, given the morbid name Bloody Week, lasted from May 21st to 28, 1871. The communards were defeated, but not until they had taken and murdered hostages and set fire to the buildings, including the Tuileries Palace. In stark contrast to the dissolution in France, on January 18, 1871, Germany would become unified into a nation-state. Princes from various German states gathered in the famed Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles, France. There, they decreed that Wilhelm I of Prussia was to become the Emperor or Kaiser. The fledgling German Empire was at peace for a time, and Paul von Hindenburg climbed through the ranks. Known for his calm, level-headed demeanor, his steely focus and experience. It comes as no surprise that by July 1st, 1885, he was promoted to the rank of Major. He was promptly dispatched to Berlin, where he would serve under the General Alfred von Schleifen. Just 10 years later, in 1905, he became Infantry General, the third highest rank in his army. By the time of the Great War, now called World War I, Hindenburg was already well into his 60s and retired from military service. Despite this, he feels the call to serve his country and offers his services again. At first, because of his advanced years, he was not even considered. However, it soon became apparent that there was a mounting situation in East Prussia. Russian troops had mobilized far faster than anticipated, launching an invasion with two armies and a total of half a million soldiers at the ready. The Germans' 8th Army, charged with the defense of East Prussia, had fewer than half their number. When faced with this, General-in-Command Maximilian von Prittwitz ordered a full retreat to the Vistula River. This move meant abandoning East Prussia and won the appall of Chief General of Staff Helmuth von Molke. The order went out that Prittwitz was to be replaced. On August 22, 1914, Paul von Hindenburg received a telegraph inquiring as to whether he was ready to command. His clear and confident reply to the request was, Am ready. Now in command of the Eighth Army, Hindenburg would make his first introduction to Chief of Staff Erich von Ludendorff. Ludendorff was as brilliant as he was relentless. He and Hindenburg were the perfect complement to one another's personalities. While Hindenburg was bold, courageous, and an inspiring leader, he was not, nor would he ever be, a great strategist. Ludendorff, on the other hand, was, but lacked Hindenburg's easy calm and charisma. It is said that Ludendorff was plagued by attacks of the nerves, or what we would likely now call today anxiety. Together, they bolstered one another, each countering the other's weakness. The battles of Tannenberg and Mosserin Lakes were stunning victories for the German army. Hindenburg found himself made a hero overnight. It seemed Hindenburg had won the adorations of all of Germany, save for one man, and a powerful one at that. Kaiser Wilhelm I felt threatened by Hindenburg's popularity. 
Perhaps this was because he recognized how dissimilar they were from one another. Or perhaps he just saw the writing on the wall. The truth was that the Kaiser's antagonistic and often inelegant style of government was losing favor with the people, and fast. The Kaiser was not the only one who the people were losing confidence in. As the war dragged on, Army Chief of Staff Erich von Falkenhayn found himself on shaky ground. The Battle of Verdun had been dragged out for an unnecessary amount of time, and as a result, had yielded massive casualties. In his post-war memoirs, Falkenhayn would later admit that this was a battle of attrition. He had hoped for one or two outcomes, either that the substantial loss of life might be enough to force European leaders to exit the war, or that the losses endured would be more detrimental to France than to Germany. Meanwhile, on the Eastern Front, the Brusilov Offensive, a decisive Russian victory, had brought both extensive casualties and capture for the Austro-Hungarian armies. This loss made Falkenhayn's failure all the more detrimental. Hindenburg sent word to the Kaiser, expressing his loss of faith in Falkenhayn's command. Ludendorff offered the suggestion that Hindenburg replace him. However, this request would not be honored until Romania joined the Entente, uniting the Russian Empire, the French Third Republic, and the United Kingdom in opposition against the Germany and Austro-Hungarian empires. Falkenhayn was promptly removed, and Hindenburg stepped in as Chief of General Staff. Together with Ludendorff, a far more defensive strategy was devised. One of their boldest actions was shortening the defensive line. On February 4, 1917, German troops moved the line of battle back nearly 10 miles from what the Germans would call the Siegfried Line and the Allies called the Hindenburg Line. Though in fairness, it was Quartermaster General Erich Ludendorff's idea. This meant the sacrifice of up to 1,000 square miles of French land they had fought so hard to gain. However, a shorter Western Front could be held by fewer men. The General Army was still licking its wounds from their defeats in 1916 and needed to conserve their manpower. The move would also better allow them to contain an Allied breakthrough. Unfortunately, by 1918, the Allies had made sweeping advances mobilizing as much as 10 miles in one day at Amens. Erich Ludendorff described this as the Schwarzer Tag des Duschen Heres, the Black Day of the German Army. Truthfully, he was not as bothered by the ground lost as he was the fall of German morale and ultimate resignation of the troops. Troops in retreat mocked officers, desperate to rouse their soldiers' spirits, calling out, You're prolonging the war! Reserves moving in were taunted with cries of blackleg, a word describing one who works despite a strike. Realizing defeat on November 18, 1918, Germany signed an armistice, agreeing to end the warfare on the Western Front. The battle had ended, but not the war, as would be proven six months later. This was the amount of time it took for the Paris Peace Conference a congregation of allied countries who had opposed Germany to settle upon their final castigation of the nation, the Treaty of Versailles. This treaty stripped Germany of a tenth of its territory. It also made stipulations that Germany would dismantle its army, accept full responsibility for the war, and pay reparations. 
This would be a tremendous blow to Germany and its economy, but that was the intent. The hope was not to simply subdue, but to cripple Germany. To assure that a war of this magnitude never again happened. As we know, it would backfire magnificently. Germany's imperial government collapsed. Worker unrest and civil strikes spread across the nation. Fearing communist revolution, major parties joined to suppress uprisings, establishing the Parliament Weimar Republic, officially the Deutsches Reich. Hindenburg was voted in as president, making him the first to be elected by the people. Hindenburg had always been a monarchist, and it was surprising to some that he made no effort to restore the Kaiser. His rationale was that, above all, he sought to restore Germany to its former greatness by reversing the Treaty of Versailles. He insisted that bringing back the Kaiser would only serve to antagonize the Allies, ultimately making this goal more difficult. Many nationalists and veterans saw the Treaty of Versailles as a humiliation. Even Allies criticized its harshness. British economist John Maynard Keynes warned that if we take the view that Germany must be kept impoverished and her children starved and crippled, vengeance, I dare predict, will not limp. The belief began to spread throughout Germany that the war could have been won if it wasn't for the betrayal of politicians, communist dissenters, and war racketeers. These words would resonate with Adolf Hitler, a war veteran. He had only just joined the small National Socialist Party, but he had quickly skyrocketed to its leadership. With his wild fervor and charisma, he drew large crowds of disillusioned Germans looking for some hope to grapple onto. While we all know his most notorious scapegoat, he also offered vehement denunciations of both communism and capitalism as international conspiracies sent to destroy the proud German people. He was grooming his audience, preying upon their suffering to fuel his eventual ascension. Indeed, in 1919, Hitler made a run for president. President Hindenburg, at the ripe old age of 74, ran for a second term. It was widely believed that he was the only man with the presence enough to defeat the emergent influence of Adolf Hitler. Hindenburg greatly disliked Hitler. He was the very antithesis of himself. Where Hindenburg was calm and practical, Hitler was driven purely on emotion, which led to acts of reckless violence and fear-mongering. Throughout his career, Hindenburg would make a point to stand in Hitler's way. In 1923, unsatisfied by the results of the past election, Hitler would orchestrate the Beer Hall Putsch, an unsuccessful coup by Hitler and his National Socialist Party. Surprisingly, they were joined by Hindenburg's former ally, Erich Ludendorff. His relationship with Hindenburg had dissolved towards the end of the Great War, and he now sued with the Kampfband an assemblage of patriotic organizations, including the National Socialist Party. It was a spectacular failure, resulting in Hitler being jailed for treason and the National Socialist Party being banned. During his time in prison, Hitler would consolidate his ideology in his book Mein Kampf, German for My Struggle. When he was released one year later, Hitler had a renewed dedication towards rebuilding the National Socialist Movement. In 1929, the Great Depression forced American banks to withdraw their loans from Germany. The already fraught German economy now collapsed. Hitler was quick to capitalize on the unrest, 
with mainstream parties seemingly incapable of handling the crisis and the left-wing too disseminated by their own internal disputes, a disenfranchised public threw their support behind the National Socialist Party. Parliamentary votes rose from 3% to an unprecedented 18% in just two years. This prompted Hitler to make another bid for presidency in 1932. Again, he would lose to the decorated war hero, General von Hindenburg. However, in this election, Hitler had secured 36% of the vote, demonstrating his sway over the people. In the following Parliament or Reichstag elections, the same year, the National Socialist Party did better than they ever had before, with 37.3% of the vote. Many argued that this was more the result of aggressive intimidation on part of the National Socialist Party then it was a true reflection of German ideals. The Nazis had a history of using violence and coercion against their opponents. In May 1932, Germany's chancellor was Heinrich Brüning. He was wildly unpopular with the people. Between the years of 1930 to 1932, in a bid to salvage the German economy, he decreased unemployment and simultaneously raised taxes. This was not a move that won favor with the average citizen who was already contending with the hardships of the Depression. Brüning's party, the Center Party, did not hold the majority of seats in the Reichstag. This meant that Brüning was completely dependent on Hindenburg's decree and held no real political power. According to the second article of the Weimar Constitution, the Reich Chancellor was the determinant of political standards in the government and the second most powerful position in the country beneath the president. The Chancellor was ergo responsible for the Reichstag and in Brüning's case, having so few seats held by fellow party members could be detrimental. In fact, Brüning would be obligated to resign from his position should the Reichstag pass a vote of no confidence, a very real threat in his precarious situation. The Reich government, equivalent to the American cabinet, determined rulings by a majority vote. However, the president, rather than vice president, would cast the decisive vote in the event of a tie. Falling out of favor with the Reichstag could result in accusation of willful violation against the Weimar Constitution or Reich law and trial by Supreme Court. On the advice of a friend, General von Schleicher, Hindenburg removed Heinrich Brüning as chancellor. His choice for replacement was Franz von Papen, a Catholic nobleman, but also a center party member. With only 68 seats supporting him in the Reichstag, this move did nothing to remedy the Chancellor's lack of influence. Von Papen held Reichstag elections in July of 1932 in an attempt to secure more seats for the Center Party. The move backfired, and the elections turned in favor of the Nazis. The National Socialist Party now held 230 seats in the Reichstag. Hitler now demanded to be given the post of Chancellor. Hindenburg flatly refused, leaving von Papen in position between July to November 1932. This new government had no confidence in von Papen, with only 32 members supporting him and 513 against him. Von Papen, still hopeful he might gain more support, organized yet another election in November 1932. Unfortunately, von Papen's center party lost even more support. However, in this new election, Nazi support also went down by a whopping 33%. Their extremely violent, bellicose methods of inducing coercion in the public had not gone unnoticed. Joseph Goebbels would write about this time in his diary. The future is dark and gloomy, and the chances of Hitler becoming chancellor are slim. Von Papen, in desperation, 
asked that Hindenburg close down the Reichstag and rule by decree, General von Schleicher again offered his advice to the German president, warning that Van Papen's chancellorship would ultimately lead to a civil war. It was a very real possibility as revolts from both Nazis and communists were rampant. Hindenburg, in response, dismissed Van Papen and appointed General von Schleicher to be chancellor, who would last less than two months. He too was unpopular and no better equipped to hold together parliament. The dejected Chancellor Van Papen now leapt upon the opportunity to reclaim a position of power for himself. He arranged a secret meeting with Hitler, proposing a plan. Hitler would become Chancellor, but Van Papen would be his Vice-Chancellor. When the proposition was brought before Hindenburg, he again refused to usher Hitler into leadership. Unfortunately, he was fast running out of alternatives. Chancellor von Schleicher resigned January 28, 1933, having failed, as his predecessors did, to win the support of the Reichstag. In desperation, President Hindenburg beseeches von Papen to return to the position of Chancellor. It was the opportunity the denounced von Papen had been waiting for. He reiterated von Schleicher's warning that his return as chancellor would likely result in civil war, inciting the ires of both Nazis and communists. Von Papen also issued a warning that the dissension would very likely mean that Hindenburg would lose his seat as president. Again, von Papen proposed instilling Hitler as chancellor and himself as vice-chancellor. Von Papen assured the frustrated Hindenburg that he could manipulate and control Hitler, providing he was put in a position where he could work with the Nazi leader and observe him. Von Papen was confident that as Vice-Chancellor, he could prevent the most excessive Nazi ideologies from becoming law. Hindenburg reluctantly agreed, and Hitler became Chancellor of Germany, January 30, 1933. It was not truly a capitulation to Hitler. At this point, the would-be Fuhrer was still reined in by the restraints of government. Any laws or edicts he might try to put into motion would have to be approved by the Reichstag. However, in 1933, an arsonist set fire to the parliament building. The Nazis alleged that Marinus van der Luber, a Dutch council communist, was discovered nearby at the time of the blaze. Though van der Luber claimed he had acted alone, a claim that would be substantiated in German court later the same year, communist agitators were publicly blamed. When President Hindenburg died at the age of 86 on August 2, 1934, Hitler made it very clear that there would be no new election. A special thanks to Justin Sias, who delighted the audience as not only the voice of not Hitler's brain, but as himself as well, and Adam Loyal, who gives us the glorious voice of Adam. Special guest Weirdsley playing the random freak, Napoleon, Sugar, and Katya's voices were actually produced by Norm Abrams of New Yankee Workshop by operating an obnoxiously squeaky lathe to shape a fluted table leg. Thank you, Norm. We love you. If you'd like to hear your name or business read on the air at the end of each episode of Creeping Wave, consider clicking the link and becoming a Patreon. Just like the illustrious Graham Dunlop and Darren Grimes of The Gramerica Show have. And also, thank you for the support from Todd Marco, who bought one of my comics. You can too by going to lostbreadcomic.com. Second one should be out soon. At least I'm trying to make that happen. And eventually I'd like to make Creeping Wave into an animation or comic as well. And your support can help me do that. 
This is a labor of love here for us at Creeping Wave, and with your patronage, we hope to create longer, more exciting episodes with better effects and uh, lots of bells and whistles. You fine folks make this all possible, so thank you for tolerating us. This is Napoleon Doom reminding you to keep it creepy. And on that note, I should probably mention the voice of the three-headed baby was actually performed by a real three-headed baby, and we can't find him right now. So uh, if any of you have any idea about the whereabouts of a three-headed baby, uh, please feel free to contact the show by email or Patreon. <laughs> oh god.